Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is January the 27th, a Saturday, 2024. We take it for granted that times moves forward. There's only one January 27th, 2024, although perhaps that's not true, at least uh, potentially if we believe quantum computing and experts on quantum mechanics. Uh, we did a show, we've done a number of shows on quantum computing, one with the wired journalist Amit Katwalo, who had an introduction a couple of years ago, quantum computing, how it works and why it could change the world. The headlines on that piece, I'm not sure if it was meant ironically, as we venture into quantum computing, are we repeating the mistakes of our tech forebears? Um, the headline suggests that we're falling back into uh, a boom-bust cycle, but maybe there's more to it, because the whole point of quantum computing is that time is perhaps circular rather than linear, at least according to my guest today, um, a, uh, a very distinguished science fiction writer, Bay Area based. He has a new book out. It's on quantum uh, mechanics, but it's science fiction, a quantum love story by Mike Chen. And he's joining us from his home office uh, on the peninsula, just down uh, 101 from me in the Bay Area. Mike, um, Quantum computing, does it suggest that time is circular? Is that one of the more revolutionary and perhaps surreal qualities of, 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 of quantum? Well, uh, so I did take one quarter of quantum mechanics in college in my senior, um, my upper division mechanical engineering. And theoretically, I found it fascinating. Like on a math level, it was really, really difficult. Um, the, the main thing with like, I don't know too much about um, like on a computing level, but on a theoretical level, I found it fascinating about, I remember our professor came in and he said, everything that you have learned about physics is wrong. Um, and for, this is your senior level engineering students. So we did all the taken four years of, of physics. And um, so that's kind of an interesting thing to say to people who have just spent a lot of their parents' money or their money and their time uh, studying that. And it, the idea was that uh, everything is microscopic um, and everything is relative. Um, and so when you start framing things that way, I remember that the, in the first two weeks, he gave us an equation for um, particle movement and it's energy-based. And the more energy you apply, the slower everything relatively around it moves. And there's a certain point where the equation flips negative. And, and that would theoretically move the particle backwards in time. Um, and that blew my mind that like there's actually a mathematical equation for theoretical time travel. I mean, you have to apply all these other variables about energy and mass in there. But uh, that's where my mind started really thinking about it from like a this is goes beyond back to the future, you know, Christopher Lloyd in a car type of thing to like there's something to this like at least on a scientific merit level. So what does it mean if time is indeed circular or looped as opposed to 
linear. What would that mean for January the 27th at about lunchtime uh, Pacific time in 2024, Mike? Are we theoretically, you and I, stuck in a, a quantum love story? Maybe not a quantum love story, but a, a, a quantum interview where this thing go on forever? <laughs> um, I think when you look at the, the use of time loops in fiction, um, it's either there's always a mechanic to it. Um, it can be magical. It can be more science-based. I chose to make mine more science-based because I have a science background and that's how I like to think. Um, and then you can look at it from a perspective of, um, at least in storytelling, you're looking at it as like, is it a metaphor for something? Is it a character study? Um, in the real world, I think like if, if we were in caught in some sort of like temporal loop um, and it wouldn't be as, you know, stakes raising as like an episode of Star Trek where, you know, the Voyager or the Enterprise is going to explode or something like that. It, we would just come back and do this interview again. And then after the interview, I would go take my daughter out for a hike again, <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. So we'd be stuck together. What about the audience? Um, because we're just, two players in this mic uh, this is going to go out it's not going out live but it will be recorded will they continually watch this uh, so that's one of the things that i try to explore in my book that um i haven't really seen in too many other narratives um the idea that like are there geographical limitations to a to a time loop uh, and you know my my story is very character driven it's it's more of a study about how people react to being stuck with uncertainty. Um, but I did want to apply, one of my main characters is a scientist and I wanted to apply this sort of like scientific exploration of like, let's test theories of how to get out of that. And one of the things that the characters do is they try to expand like the, the geography of where they know like this explosion happens that ignites this sort of time loop. And so what happens if they get outside of like the physical boundaries of it, does it, does it uh, still capture them? Does it capture the entire world? And then I think like, you know, there are questions that we're not gonna be able to answer as human scientists in the year 2024, if something like this theoretically happened, but if you escaped like the earth's atmosphere, uh, like would it happen to like space as well? Um, or like if you were on a moon colony or a Mars colony, and those are, those are questions for people who have far higher degrees than me. Mike, if we were having this conversation six or 700 years ago and you were, and we probably wouldn't because there wouldn't be the internet back then, <laughs> but if we were in a, in a little bit. If we were bit, in a pub. We were in a pub somewhere in medieval Europe and you said to me, well, I think that uh, the world is not, the earth is not the center of the universe. It gravitates around the sun or the sun gravitates around uh, the world um, and that we're just one planet in a massive infinite solar system. You'd think I was insane. <laughs> Is it conceivable, do you think? I mean, you're not a hardcore scientist, you're a science fiction writer, but still uh, you've done that course on quantum. Is it conceivable in a couple of hundred years that this will become the standard explanation for things. And we will look back at the 20th century and think, how could those people have been so naive to believe that time was linear? Oh, I think so. I, I think um, the fact that, you know, I took, I graduated from uh, UC Davis in 2000. 
And so quantum mechanics had already been established for several decades. Um, I mean, it's like the energy equation that I mentioned earlier is basically Einstein's E equals MC squared. There's other variables attached to it as constants um, or not as constants, but like at, on the tail end of the equation. Um, but in essence, it's energy equals mass times acceleration, like which is the speed of light C squared. So this has already been examined for decades about the idea that everything is relative, everything is microscopic, um, and how we experience things changes based on the energy applied to it and the relative motion of where you're experiencing things. There's, um, there is a thing about how, I think it's airline pilots, how because they spend so much of their lives like actually traveling at high speeds, that they all live like a, um, their cumulative lifespan is like a fraction of a second um, shorter than everyone else's um, because they've been traveling at a different speed for a lot of it. So there's things like that where there's already a lot of um, scientific and mathematical thinking about that sort of thing. And I imagine like as we have machine learning able to crunch numbers and produce more simulations on a higher level um, in you know decades, things like this will probably be more like lower division college courses instead of like the end of a upper division college cycle. Mike, if we go back to that 15th century imagining uh, scenario between you and I, we both peasants in that pub. In a sense, everything changes and in a sense, nothing does. I mean, we still mm. live and die. We still eat and drink and love and get sick and have children and travel. Um, mm -hmm. Nothing has profoundly changed except our perception of the world and our place in it. If this quantum stuff is true, does it change anything? I mean, how do we rethink ourselves and our lives? Because we think... still live and die. I mean, it's not as if um, this, 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 uh, so that time loops are perceived by us so that we don't stay at the same age for years do we no i i think like you know in, in theory if you were in a time loop like everything would advance within that you know set span in my book it's four days you know in theory like it could be you know a day weeks years possibly um but you would never know um so i think that's one of those things where it's like everyone in it would age and experience at the same speed. Um, now, I think like in terms of our understanding of this, like does it change anything? Does our, our understanding of quantum mechanics change anything? I was talking with someone the other day about how, you know, it's 2024 and smartphones have been around for like 15 years. But there was like maybe a five-year period where they transitioned from like being you know these clunky Blackberries that a few people had to iPhones and Androids that everyone had, and then you know corporate um, the corporate world bought into that and started giving apps for everything, and suddenly information is freely exchanged on this tiny device that sits in your pocket. And over the course of about ten years, like the way that we schedule things, we communicate, all of that has kind of fundamentally changed but our mundane lives if you look at how that's actually used you know we're just we're ordering groceries and saying hi to our friends 
you know, through through these tiny devices instead. Yeah, of and the other thing about the, the period you're talking about is whilst it's true, of course, in tech and carrying these supercomputers around in our pockets, a lot of people, and we've done a couple of shows on this, a lot of people have noticed that over the last 20 or 25 years, there hasn't been a great deal of change in culture, in dress. So if someone was to disappear from the world in 2000 and reappear in 2024, everything looks the same. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's interesting. I think like, I mean, this is more on like the social cultural side of things, but I, I think as someone who, like I'm a big music person. And if you could tell, you know, like in the nineties, I would go, you know, I would spend my weekend evenings like at Tower Records, like searching for import CDs of my favorite bands for remixes and stuff. And if you could tell that kid that there's a device in your pocket that has every song in the catalog by every artist that you could want, including B-sides, including remixes, including rare live stuff, and you can stream a video of their concert, it would blow my mind, you know? But then I, I think the flip side of that is popular culture has just kind of become this big squishy thing that everyone kind of experiences in the same way. You know, they're like the sort of like niche communities of like hardcore music nerds or whatever, like, you know, everyone just kind of has free access to this. And I think like because of that, you've lost some value in it. Um, you've lost like the journey to like, hunt down you know like this rare b-side or whatever and the community that builds around that and then the sort of like you know cultural things that build up around that like in terms of like dress and activities and things like that so um i mean that's that's a much bigger question for yeah, it's an interesting question actually it comes back to quantum if if it does indeed become the orthodoxy in scientific terms uh, you noted back in 2000, everyone went to Tower Records. Tower is shut. But where I am in San Francisco, there's an amoeba down the street. Oh, good. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I collect vinyl like so many other people. And uh, earlier this week, I was in there spending too much money on vinyl. Mm -hmm. We're all nostalgic, of course, now for the analog world. Do you think in the future, if this quantum vision happens, that people will become nostalgic for linear time i think anytime you have a jump forward in the way that society works there's there's an immediate appreciation for what's new and shiny but then like because everything seems to accelerate our pace of life and i think every time that there's a leap forward there's always a pushback of like it wouldn't be nice if things were simpler you know i think about like growing up in the 90s and everyone going from like network tv to like getting cable tv and video games and things like that and then back then you know you heard the same lament about like oh i wish things were simpler where you didn't have like you know 50 channels and like these interactive games that you could play on your tv so i think like wherever you go in sort of scientific advancements and how they integrate into society there's always going to be that sort of like nostalgic lament for like i wish for a simpler time um i imagine my daughter you know right now she's growing up with like she can talk with her friends in los angeles and boston on zoom and it's no big deal it is so normal. how old's your daughter she's nine she plays Nintendo Switch um, uh, online while talking to her friend in LA. 
And that is completely normal for her. Um, and I'm sure that she will in 20 years lament how simple that was compared to, you know, whatever technology she is facing at the time. So I think there's sort of this sort of cultural, like longing for simpler things, but that simplicity is relative based on, you know, decades. We're speaking with Mike Chen, his new book. He's um, written many books. He has a big following, a very, yeah, very distinguished science fiction writer, very successful one. Has a new book out, uh, coming out uh, next week on Tuesday. If indeed time is linear, maybe it's revolving, we'll never get to next Tuesday. A quantum love story. I want to thank our sponsor, Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics. Excellent new publication. Uh, comes out quarterly, four times a year. Again, uh, maybe it will be more than four times in the quantum future. Going to run a short feature on uh, Liberties, and then we'll be back with Mike Chen to talk more about a quantum love story. I want to talk about the book itself and the love story at the heart of it. So I'll be back in a second. Don't go away, anyone, unless quantum is right, and then you're stuck in this infinite loop. The news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties, it's not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. You'll find most things in it. It's an excellent publication, although you won't find a lot of science fiction. Uh, my guest today, Mike Chen, has cornered that market. His new book, A Quantum Love Story, is out next week. Mike, um, the heart of the book is a love story. It's science fiction. Uh, the Washington Post loved the, loved the book already, um, and, and, and it's one of the books that they suggest shows that it's easy to fall in love with super competent heroes. How hard is it to write a love story as a science fiction writer? How different are love stories in science fiction books from just books which are romantic uh, as opposed to science fictional? I think, well, so there's a few different um, layers to that question. It's part of it is genre expectations. So if you are writing what's traditionally considered a romance or a romantic comedy or like women's fiction with romance, there are certain expectations for how the story is going to go um, and the pacing of that story. Like the, the love story has to be like front and center in the plotting. Um, for genres like science fiction, you don't usually get that there. Like the love story is always like the, the subplot or the B story. And you'll see that in, in films and TV too. Um, with how they integrate those types of personal stories in there. Uh, what I really wanted to do as an author is I had never really quite focused on um, like romantic relationships as my like priority within a plot. Um, I've done a lot of like family relationships, siblings, friendships, parent child, but I really wanted to make this like the primary motivator for these two people. And I wanted to use the idea of a time loop as um, like a circumstance where two people who should not normally encounter each other get stuck together and what they can bring out of each other and how they can heal their own sorts of um, 
like traumatic wounds and find someone else that they can really appreciate. Um, a, a lot of it, a lot of the inspiration for it actually came from the last few years um, as, you know, I, I think like we all kind of felt like we were in our own sort of time loop around 2020 and 2021 with the idea of like, you know, is it safe to go visit family? Like who are like, we're all in these different circumstances. We're talking to people on Zoom, like maybe our work situations have changed or some people have like moved to new towns because their jobs changed and suddenly everything's different, but then you're also just kind of stuck at home and not knowing when you're going to break out of this sort of like loop of waiting for, you know, the world to get better from, from pandemic circumstances. Yeah, the breaking out of the loop, the idea of being stuck, of course, is a, uh, a very persistent theme in, in, in literature, the idea of invention and, and reinvention. Mm -hmm. uh, do you think that that's the core to love stories? Love stories are, are attempts to escape being stuck, or are they in, in some ways perhaps a form of being stuck? I think it's both. Um, I think what you will find in a lot of people who I remember talking, or there's a thing in, um, in, in psychology, when you're looking at like marriages that kind of hit like a failed state, um, that mm. it's not um, the worst thing in a, a troubled marriage is apathy. It's not anger. It's not depression. It's not like those other types of like it's indifferent. Know, yes. Yeah. And that in itself is a sort of loop, you know, where you're just kind of like stuck in this place of, of you know, apathetic interactions. Um, but I think in storytelling, breaking that loop, like whatever the, it's always about, you know, characters have to have an arc. So they are trying to get from one state of being to another, like on an emotional level, while hopefully, you know, driving the external plot forward. So in, in the case of my book, um, it's a little bit different from a lot of time loop stories because those focus really, really hard on the external actions. Um, and it's usually always one person who is, you know, trying to save the world in by breaking out of the loop. In this case, I wanted to have two people who are stuck in there together and realize that like this time that they have, um, not only can they explore themselves, but they can explore the idea of connecting with another human while they're trying to figure out how do we get out of this? And do they even want to get out of it? Because there's a there's a large segment of the book where they realize they have no consequences for what they do. And what would you do with that like four day span of you can do anything because things are just going to reset? You describe yourself, Mike, um, as both an author um, and a geek, uh, which is, of course, a term very familiar in the in the bay area um the washington post in the in the review talks about super competent heroes it, it, are your heroes geeky is competence and geekiness are they the same thing or are they actually um uh opposites in some way and and, I, and and what's so great about a competent hero i think um the word geek um you know i, I grew up in the 90s when or 80s and 90s when it was a lot more derogatory net right now i think like when, when people talk about being geeky for something it just means that they're really really passionate 
about it. So you can be geeky about food. Like my, my wife is geeky about food and you know, she loves to like watch cooking shows and does she put does, does she photograph your meals and put them on Instagram? Yes, she does. <laughs> when when oh, she's yeah. really proud of a recipe. And you're still married to her, Mike. <laughs> I you know, we have a lot of other stuff that we're geeky about together. Um, so she's also like a science fiction geek. So I think like um there's a difference in, in pop culture terms these days. Like geek means like really passionate. I mean, in and there's still kind of like the stereotype of like science fiction and technology passionate, which I consider myself that way like i've immersed myself in science fiction since i was young um but also like other things like you know indie rock and punk rock like i've been a music geek my whole life um being a geek does not what mean that you're mean? just being super interested in one thing yeah i would say like not just being a casual fan of it but like wanting to know like all the nuts and bolts like if i'm like music geeks like you know we would call ourselves that in the 90s because we were the ones who were you know, at Tower Records at 11 p.m. looking for B-sides. You know, your casual uh, fan of a band is just going to pick up their new release and, like, not really care about, like, a rare live recording. You know, that sort of thing. But there's a difference, I think, between, like, um, you know, the Washington Post review talking about, like, hyper-competence. In my previous book was about a uh, music geek vampire and she was not competent at life at all like she could rattle off you know her favorite punk bands and how like you know the replacements in the clash influenced like the 90s you know wave of punk rock and things like that but she was terrible at life um and in the case of a quantum love story um the lead character mariana like she's competent at problem solving like she's a scientist and the way that like she approaches this loop that they're in is about um experimentation and controls um and so she's she's hyper competent at that uh, like observation um and using like an engineering approach to solve her life's problems and what she finds is that like on an emotional level that doesn't always work um and the person that she's stuck in the loop with carter is uh m much more of a like let things happen like slow down and enjoy things but like that's not going to work in terms of trying to escape a you know a temporal situation so these two people find each other and manage to balance each other out um but i do agree with the the thesis of that washington post article that oftentimes in popular culture um there's kind of a stigma around like um hyper competence about it being like so it being socially isolating or looked down upon for like you know just kind of being annoying um but it's really nice to have a a protagonist in a story that like you can trust that they're making smart decisions um to resolve their situation in a way that's like you know they're, they're going to need emotional growth i mean that's why characters have arcs but uh, it's nice to go along with them and not see them constantly, you know, <laughs> messing it up. You've also written and spoken about the idea of um, writing about what you call inclusive superheroes. Mm -hmm. um, is there a degree of inclusivity in, in, in this new book? Uh, it, it, are, are you, it's hard not to comment these days on all the cultural complexities of 21st century america especially in the bay area mm -hmm. do you touch on these or 
um, is the issue of inclusivity and culture? Is that left out of this book? Um, I have addressed it um, in different ways in in all my books, and in, in, in sometimes it's more front and center, and sometimes it's um, a little bit more in the background. One of the baselines that I try to do. Um, and this is one of the things that I really appreciate about how pop culture has evolved, in like the, especially I'd say in the past 10 years, is that um, there is a real strength in like representing the simple. And what I mean by that is um, when you see characters of color or different you know identities, like you know trans people, queer people, anything like that, and you just see them existing, in pop culture, there is real strength in that because it, it, it means that they have, they're being given the space to be themselves. Um, so my baseline for inclusivity in my books is just assigning characters who are a broad spectrum of types of people that like I consider the people that I love in my own life. Um, in some cases, so my previous novel, Vampire Weekend, is about, um, I mentioned is about like a punk rock vampire, but it, that one is really about um, generational trauma of being the child of an immigrant. Um, and it's as close to, I guess, autobiographically themed as I can get. Um, it's about how being the child of an immigrant, you know, your immigrant parents have certain expectations about what, why they came to America and there's a sort of you know divide between like well what if what if you don't agree with that um and what if you don't conform to those expectations but then you're kind of stuck in like this middle ground where like you're not you're not you know fully american and you're not fully you know whatever your parents were um and where do you find community in that um and, and so that's taking a look at it from a different perspective of trying to um address the sort of like social comfort of different uh different perspectives in the case of a quantum love story um like because it's so focused on these two characters and what they are trying to get through um there's not as much of a you know social commentary with the book it's more about like um a, a character story but that what i did talk about earlier about like trying to include like a diverse cast um that's the same thing with this book I like the, the title of Quantum Love Story, though I worry that, and this isn't in any way a criticism for you, that the word quantum is losing any meaning. Uh, a couple of years ago, we had the head of marketing from MasterCard on the show uh, talking about something called the fifth paradigm of technology, which sounds to me fairly meaningless. He'd written a book called Quantum Marketing, which again seemed kind of meaningless. Are we in danger with this word quantum of it becoming a word that just doesn't have any meaning. We just throw it out to suggest something dramatically different. I think you're probably going to, you, you get that with um, any sort of scientific term that has integrated itself into, you know, popular culture. Um, you know, I think about like when the internet came about, like, you know, watching it rise from like this, subculture of like bbs boards and like maybe prodigy users to like the actual web and corporations are starting to have their own like websites and you know artists are starting to like promote through there and then like the buzzword on everything was cyber 
you know, everything was cyber or net. Um, you know, there's a Sandra Bullock movie called like the net to <laughs> just kind of capitalized on that. Um, and these days, of course, it's AI, everything. Yeah, good. exactly. Um, and especially like in the Bay Area, like you could be driving on 101 and you can see billboards for, you know, AI startup companies that are basically, you know, trying to solve problems that they're inventing themselves, you know. Um, so I, I think like anything, any sort of scientific terminology that breaks out of you know, the the area of expertise and in, into our social consciousness, um, it's going to get marketed to hell. Final question, uh, Mike. Uh, congratulations on the new book. It's out next week. It's a love story, so it's a very private story. But if, um, if this was true about time loops, is there a moment in history that you would like to experience and re-experience and perhaps even be imprisoned in right if i had to pick <clears throat> um i think i would probably pick a time in like the late 80s or early 90s and i would just basically see all of my favorite like indie and punk bands <laughs> like i would use my my loop to just go to as many concerts as i could um and and try to catch some of these bands in like their nascent days in small clubs. <laughs>